where nobody knows your name is not filmed in front of a live studio audience. Hello and welcome to Where Nobody Knows Your Name, a Cheers podcast. Today we are joined by a very special guest. His award-winning partnership with David Isaacs has appeared on screen for more than 40 years. You've seen his work on many hit shows, and if you're a baseball fan, particularly of the LA Dodgers, you'll recognize his voice. He's the man behind the exceptional podcast, Hollywood and Levine. It's, of course, Ken Levine. How are you doing, Ken? Good. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. It's it's. An honor really to have you. I mean, we've been doing this podcast for a bit. Really exciting to talk to you yourself, one of the writers of the show. Well, cool. Thank you. One of the first things that we were going to ask was, um, so when did you first hear about Cheers as a project? And uh, how early on in sort of the show were you brought into the writing side of it? And how did you get involved, really? Well, to go back, my partner David and I had worked in 1977, I believe, on the Tony Randall show on ABC, which was done by MTM, and we met Jimmy Burroughs. Uh, Jimmy directed a number of our episodes. So we had a relationship with Jimmy. We had never met the Charles brothers, but um, it's now the early part of 1982, like the spring of 1982, and David and I had a development deal at Lorimar to create pilots, and I get a call one afternoon from Jimmy saying that he and the Charles brothers have a show called Cheers, that they have a 13-episode commitment to start that fall on NBC. Would David and I be interested in uh, producing it with them? And my first thought was, well, we're doing our own pilots. What do we need to do someone else's show for? But I said to Jimmy, sure, okay, send us over the, the script. And this was a first draft. It was a, a rather early draft because Sam was still a football player, former football player for the Patriots back in that draft. But both David and I read it and we looked at each other and said, this is great. We'd be nuts not to want to get involved with this. So we said, okay. And um, so we were there for the pilot but not officially on staff. But after the pilot, we then made a deal like in May and, uh, and joined the show as producers. And the first year, the writing staff was me and David and Glenn and Les Charles. That was it. We had a couple of consultants who would come in one night a week in Jerry Belson and David Lloyd. But other than that, uh, the Charles Brothers wrote a bunch of episodes. We wrote five episodes. And we also got some outside help from some terrific writers who uh, the Charles Brothers had worked with on Taxi and during their MTM days. So we had Earl Pomerantz do a few drafts and Sam Simon and Ken Esten and David Lloyd. So we had a, a pretty good batch of scripts going in. And as the season progressed and we were looking for some new writers, we picked up Heidi Perlman along the way and also David Angel. And eventually both of them joined the writing staff later. But that first year, it was just the four of us. So it's, it sounds like it was quite a sort of dynamic, sort of small group for the beginning. And, and some of the episodes that came out there were really sort of stand out. We'll get on to them later on, I guess. For a show which was all about sort of the small group of characters, were they kind of forming out of the relationships you had in such a small writer's room at the beginning? Well, I would say no. I would say there was quite a bit of experimenting going on in the beginning. And if you watch like the first half a dozen episodes, you'll see where there'll be a Sam and Diane episode. And there's one episode where uh, a number of quirky outside characters came into the bar and we had four or five stories going and we thought well maybe the format should be kind of like Barney Miller where they really depended upon outside colorful characters and that didn't seem to work and we had the show with uh, Carla and the obnoxious Yankee fan so we we're playing around with how much 
We can use some of the supporting characters and give them strong episodes. We also were playing with the relationships within the bar, an episode that David and I wrote called Truths or Consequences, where uh, Carla and Diane sit down and try to resolve their issues. So really early on, we were just kind of trying things to see what worked. And certainly the thing that emerged stronger than anything else was the Sam and Diane relationship. And the decision was made fairly early on to always keep that alive, even if that wasn't the focus of the episode that week. Even if we're going to do a one-page run, just keep that alive, keep reminding the audience of that relationship. And that was really kind of what built to the final episode of the season when they finally kiss. But uh, I think Cheers was really the first show that had, uh, for a sitcom at least, uh, a series arc. Because back then, networks primarily wanted every episode to be standalones so they could mix and match and shuffle the air dates and move something up that they liked and move something back that they didn't. But in the case of Cheers, there was a, a certain serialistic style to it. And um, so, you know, I'm told that uh, we were the first sitcom that actually had a, a series arc. Now they all do it. Now it happens all the time. It's interesting you say that because a lot of sitcom romances are often referred to as a Sam and Diane relationship. And it's evident from that that they were inspired by Cheers and the writing therein. I've seen the behind the scenes of the Big Bang Theory, for example, which I know uh, James Burroughs was involved in, and he was telling Kaylee Cuoco about the Sam and Diane relationship. It shows the longevity and lasting power and influence that the writing of them as a couple had for sitcoms to come over the years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, these these shows are iconic and they're on all the time. It's not that difficult to find. Okay. Yeah. It's interesting that you say that as well. Myself and my own experience with Cheers is because obviously the, the show came out before I was born and ended before I was born. And my experience initially to it was the sort of reruns out of order and you couldn't really understand what was going on. And it's only now that myself and James have started this podcast where we're going through episode by episode sort of, and then doing a podcast episode off the back of each one that we're really appreciating that storytelling across and the serialized nature of it. So it's, it's interesting that it is one of the first that, that did that or the first that did that, but I wasn't aware that it was one of the first, but it's something that doing this podcast that myself and James started is something that we're appreciating a lot, that the sort of nuances and threads through the series always come back. You know, and it's not like we set out to do something groundbreaking. It was just how we felt we could best tell a story. Mm. In regards to that, another groundbreaking show you worked on was MASH, which was not only the highest viewed finale at the time, but is still viewed as a masterpiece in television writing. From what I've heard on your podcast and through your blog, Hollywood and Levine, you and David Isaacs met in the Army Reserves, I believe. That's true. How did this experience help your career in writing for MASH and how much of your own life experiences did you include for writing a show about the military? Well, I honestly think that David and I could not have written MASH had we not been in the Army. And we We did meet in the Army Reserves, which was a six-year program of meetings and two weeks every summer of being on active duty. But there is also six months of active duty when you have to go through basic training and you have to go through advanced individual training. And it really orients you into the military and the special military way of thinking. And like I said, I felt even though I was 26 years old when I was writing for MASH and had not been in a war and was not a doctor, but I felt very comfortable writing in that world because I understood that world. And I don't think that I could have had I not 
had that experience in the army. That makes a lot of sense. Yes. And I've heard of other shows as well. When they are writing about specific environments, it is often because the writers involved lived it to an extent. And although, as you say, you weren't necessarily in a war, you certainly knew the camaraderie aspect and humor that was shared among the troops. Oh, yeah. There's a real culture, real military culture. And we felt very comfortable writing in that arena. That's good to know. And another aspect from further back in your career is you started in radio or Radio Wars early on in your career as uh, Beaver Cleaver, I believe. Yeah, that's my disc jockey name. Hard to believe with this voice <laughs> that I had a career in radio. No, I, I think it's great. As I say, listening to Hollywood and Levine, there's a lot of information from it. And although you may not believe it, you do have the type of voice which shows uh, that you know what you're talking about. And there is wisdom there. It's, it's better than well, I've often been told that my voice is confusing and an accent is hard to place, and I'm sure John would agree with that. But. <laughs> and I've got a mild lisp, so we do a great You're podcast. from Louisiana, right? Yeah, this is how we talk in Louisiana. Yeah, okay. <laughs> what I was going to ask is, I've heard or read in an article more accurately that James Burroughs said that in Cheers they had brought radio back to television in how dialogue was so central to the show. With your own background and passion for radio, how did this influence how you and David wrote for Cheers? Well, I don't think the radio that I was used to, which was Top 40 radio and also sports play-by-play radio, necessarily related to the type of radio that Jimmy was talking about, which was old-time radio where they were, there were radio shows, there were sitcoms like Duffy's Tavern, which was set in a bar that was basically one-act plays that were done on the radio. And there's very few of that today. But Cheers was a show that really depended more on the characters and the relationships and less about, like you take a show like Lucy or something that has a lot of physical business. And not to say that Cheers didn't have some physical business, but primarily it was dialogue driven, that the humor came from the dialogue and the characters. And you could pretty much listen to to an episode of Cheers and follow what was going on. I, look, I I appreciated the fact that the show was dialogue heavy and, you know, it emphasized the dialogue because to me that meant it emphasized the writing. Yes, for sure. And John and I have observed that particularly in the early seasons, it was all in the open bar area. I don't believe that even Sam's office was added until later in the first season. So as you say, it definitely focused on those more verbal, uh, neuro-linguistic aspects as opposed to the physical gags. We used Sam's office. uh, We used it in Any Friend of Diane's, which is our episode. I think Sam's office uh, was probably used hmm, episode six, episode seven, maybe earlier. And the pool room was always used. One thing we did that first season that they never did again was we never left that bar. Mm-hmm. We never went out anywhere. And the opening episode of season two, they go to Diane's apartment. And from then on, the show would from time to time leave the bar. But in season one, we never left that one set. I think it's it's interesting because uh, in some sitcoms, they refer to them as bottle episodes where it's for budgetary reasons, it's all in one set, but it's almost like a, a bottle season. But the thing that those episodes do is they build character so much. And I think that's why by the end of that first season, you know the character so well. Was that sort of limitation almost built into the pitch of the show of just having the one set? I don't know. The decision was made by Glenn and Les and Jimmy to keep the whole show in the bar that first season. And I think they decided to go away from that to go to Diane's apartment in the season premiere, season two. But uh, the problem with 
it only being in the bar is that a lot of other things happen off stage. And instead of being able to see it, we just have to hear about it. And it's always better to be able to see a scene than just have the character come in and go, boy, I had the craziest thing happen to me. So I think that's one of the reasons why they finally decided to expand. And even then, we would go away from the bar maybe once an episode. There were a lot of episodes where we didn't leave the bar. And there were episodes where we'd use like a half a show if we're going to go away to sort of justify it. I remember a great episode called Dinner at Eight-ish, where Sam and Diane go over to Frasier and Lilith's. And that show takes place, uh, half of that show takes place in uh, Frasier's apartment. But from time to time, we would still use the bar. David and I did an episode who's actually my favorite of the 40 that we wrote called To All the Girls We Loved Before, which was Frasier's Bachelor Party. And we were in the bar 99% of the time. The only time we cut away was a phone call to uh, Rebecca's apartment where they were having a bachelorette party and uh, they were talking to, um, to Carla. And I think that's about a 15, 20 second scene. And other than that, it was all in the bar. You mentioned the episode with Fraser's bachelor party. Was he a character you particularly liked writing for? I enjoyed writing Fraser. I enjoyed writing the coach and Woody and Diane and Norm, Sam. I, pretty much, pretty much all of them except um, Cliff. Cliff kind of <laughs> got to be tire, tiresome, and it was also getting hard by season five to write Sam and Diane shows because we had kind of tilled that soil so often. But uh, especially early on, I loved writing Sam and Diane. Rebecca was fun towards the end. When Rebecca first joined the series and she was really kind of a martinet, it was kind of hard to find what to do with her. And eventually, when we hit upon the fact that she's very funny when she's a mess, then the character suddenly became very funny and, uh, and we enjoyed writing her. I mean, the easiest character to write uh, was Woody and the coach. Those are the easiest, easily. Yeah. And I think you've said it in one of your blogs that with characters which are not as smart as the others, they're both the easiest and most fun to write for because they could be useful for information. So imparting information on them and them not understanding is you can both mine for comedic value and for delivering aspects of the backstory or plot across. Yeah, that's true. It's a way of being able to fill the audience in on what's happening in the plot because you're able to go to the coach and say, no, see, uh, Diane is setting Sam up with her friend, but Sam thinks that he's really setting himself up with her. And so that's where the confusion is. So it, it allows us to, you know, get out exposition to the audience through the use of, of these characters. I suppose something um, that was really useful with these characters as well was addressing sort of big um, social topics and, and, and things at the time. And one of the episodes which really stood out within season one was your Emmy-nominated episode, The Boys at the Bar. And to tackle something that I believe was so sort of maybe contentious at the time, how did that come about in the writer's room and the writing process of it? How many sort of revisions were there between the first draft and what ended up on screen? Well, again, we were still experimenting in that first year. And this came about through a, a story that I had read about a former Los Angeles Dodger baseball player named Glenn Burke, who eventually came out and was the first openly gay major league baseball player. Actually, I think he came out after his playing days were through, but still. And I thought, well, that would be kind of interesting to 
do a show where a character like that was Sam's roommate and wrote a book in which he comes out. And the question is, will Sam support him and um, and to make it relevant to the bar? And again, this was 1982. The characters who were still not as beloved and were still so homophobic uh, were afraid that Cheers, as a result of Sam's support of his former roommate, that the bar would go gay, that they would lose this sports bar to a gay bar. And so we worked out a story and we wrote the first draft. And I don't think, honestly, that there were a lot of changes. There were line changes here and there, but I don't think the story really changed. Interestingly, we had the table reading of it before every show goes into production, the cast sat around a big conference table and read the script out loud, and we got a chance to hear it. And sometimes those things are great, and everyone's laughing, and you figure you got an easy week. And other times, it's just death, and you go back to the office, and you go, all right, we got to rewrite the crap out of this. But this one played okay. Got some laughs. Played okay. So I'm walking out of the conference room with Ted, and he says to me, don't change a word. And I thought he was being sarcastic. So I turned to him and I said, hey, fuck you, man. You know, we're trying something here, okay? We're trying something. And he goes, wait, no, 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 I, I meant it. Don't change a word. It's just, it's just fine. So I really know how to take a compliment. <laughs> but then again, the, the week of production was pretty smooth. And it came off pretty well. At the time, we didn't know it was you know, going to be groundbreaking. Uh, we won the Writers Guild Award for that episode. We were nominated for an Emmy for that episode. And we won the GLAAD Award from the LGBT community. And um, you know, now there are people saying, well, they should pull that episode because it's really insensitive and, you know, and, and I'm saying, look, the gay community gave us an award, said it was the best script of the year. How insensitive could we be? <laughs> yeah. We've seen the, the, the same sort of lists and we, we feel like they don't, they haven't watched it. I think in a lot of times they've read the synopsis and they haven't watched it, which I think is a shame because as you say, it, it is a really good piece of writing and represents the community and they've acknowledged that really well. But I think something which was really maybe impressed in a bit about it as well is the, the setting of a sports bar. And that's where this conversation is being held. And as you said, it was one of the first maybe sitcoms to tackle the subject like this, but also the setting and the characters who are exploring the, the concept, is it feels really unique in that way as well. And it was the first season. I don't think we would have gone anywhere near that in later years, simply because you'd go, you don't want Norm and Cliff and everyone to be homophobic in the bar, (laughs) you know? But at the time, again, first season, and we were just experimenting with things. It raises an interesting point, as you've said, about the heavy topics. And The Boys in the Bar is a key example of that. As we say, it's won GLAAD and other awards from the LGBT community, as well as an Emmy for writing. The question I have is, throughout your career, in many shows you've written for, you've often balanced the addressing of heavy social themes with plenty of hilarity. A key example is The Boys in the Bar and most obviously in MASH. How did you and David go about achieving this balance? Well, I think MASH really helped a lot. And one thing that we were always taught early on, because the shows that we responded to when we were starting out were the MTM shows and MASH. And those shows always celebrated humanity. And they could be very funny, but they always had to be grounded. And so when we got involved with MASH, we were already on board in that regard. You know, we we were already thinking along those lines. So to me, the chance to be able to tackle issues of, you know, importance or relevance 
or just something emotional that people can relate to was primary in our thinking. And then finding a way of doing that respectfully in a humorous way was secondary. So that has always been part of our writing. And all the shows that we've written, we try to achieve that. And I've been writing plays and that's really what I'm working on as well, because my feeling is I don't just want the audience to laugh. I want the audience to care. And if they can care and they also laugh, great. But if I had to choose only one of the two, I want the audience to care. And I think that's obvious in in a lot of your work. You were involved in early episodes of The Simpsons. I believe uh, key Mm -hmm. examples were Dancing Homer and Saturdays of Thunder, which we'll delve into more later. But the early Simpsons were definitely the era where, although it was a animated sitcom, it was one which was primarily about that human aspect of a family, despite them being animated, and how us as an audience can empathise with them, which I think it's quite a popular opinion that in the more recent episodes, it is lacking that sense of care as a primary emotion. Well, I think early on, especially uh, Jim Brooks was more involved, Sam Simon, who was really the creative force in the early years of The Simpsons. He understood that. And yeah, even though they were animated characters, we dealt with their emotions. You know, what would Homer feel here? What would Marge feel? Not just, hey, this would really be funny. Let's put them in a water slide park. We wanted to do stories that, you know, Dance and Homer was a story about a guy who is constantly overlooked, finally having an opportunity to shine, finally having an opportunity to step into the limelight and how that affects him and how that affects the family. So that's at the basis of Dance and Homer. It's not just, oh, wouldn't it be fun to have Homer dance at a minor league baseball stadium and then you could do all these baseball jokes and uh, then he could go to a major league park and he could do major league jokes. It's like, no, that's not what the story was. The, the story was that for the first time in his life, people valued and respected something that Homer Simpson did. That was the, the crux of that story. And that could be a story on any show, really. The thing with that episode as well is it ends with quite a, a sad story because he, he goes out and his dance doesn't work, essentially. And he kind of ends up a failure, but he finds what he needs within his family at the end. That's quite interesting how you, you know it's about the caring and not necessarily the spectacle always. Yeah. And our other episode, Saturdays of Thunder, which is about a soapbox derby race, was all about Homer not thinking that he was a a good enough father and trying to learn about his son's interests and collaborate with his son on a project. So the crux of that episode was really father-son bonding. Hmm. In terms of Cheers, as John and you have mentioned, you weren't in for season four, but you came back for season five with Never Love a Goalie, the two-parter, I believe. Mm -hmm. As writers who came back to Cheers and wrote a number of episodes throughout its 11-year run, what was the process that you and David followed with the greater writer's room for your episodes, not just to work as individual episodes in their own right, but also to fold into the story of Cheers as a whole, as you pointed out, is the first serialized sitcom. So coming back after a year, it may have felt difficult to ensure it fell into that serialized story arc. Well, the year that we came back, because we had missed year four when we went off and did our own show for Mary Tyler Moore. And the year that we came back was the year that Rebecca joined the bar after Diane had departed. So the show really took a turn 
that year. And we were there from the beginning of, of that turn. Also, we were, quote, creative consultants on the show, meaning we worked there one day a week. So we were involved with all of the scripts. We were involved in coming up with all of the stories and rewriting all of the scripts, being down on the stage. Um, So we weren't really freelance writers per se. So we knew exactly what the game plan was and we would come up with stories or everyone would just come up with different stories and we would end up taking one or two of them and we would work out outlines and we would type up a eight, nine page outline and then bring it back and we'd all look at it and make any adjustments. And then David and I would go off and write the draft. Usually like the first year, Everyone is still kind of finding their way around. Uh, We sometimes would do a second draft, but most of the time, I would say 36 or 37 of the 40 episodes, we only did one draft. Oh. And then the draft would go to the room and we would all polish it together. But yeah, that was was pretty much it. And, And when we got towards the and in those last few years, when the Steinkellners and Fief Sutton were basically the showrunners, we didn't even do the outlines. We would work out kind of a beat sheet with them. And then David and I would go off on our own and really kind of flesh it out. And sometimes we would change things. And so we would run it by Sherry and Bill and say, here's what we want to do instead. And usually they said, okay, go ahead. (laughs) You know, the fact that we knew how to tell these stories, they pretty much left it to us, especially the Bar Wars stories. Those those stories we constructed completely on our own. And then we went off and and wrote the draft. Wow. Those are incredible stories, the Bar Wars stories. Uh, I'm not sure if there's a box set of them alone, (laughs) but I I would buy it even though I have the full Cheers box set already just just because of how they work. They were fun. They were fun to do once a year. As the like popularity of Cheers grew throughout its 11-year run, were there like more opportunities that came from that with storytelling and, and potentially with maybe guest stars who were coming in and things like that that made you sort of potentially have to write for someone who wanted to be in Cheers, essentially? Well, the introduction of new characters helped being able to bring in Woody and bring in Rebecca helped. And then later on, we experimented with Hill, the guy who ran Melville's, just to add another character, to add an adversary. So having new characters helped. Having the characters be able to grow helped, as opposed to MASH, where they were locked in this time and place. The Korean War lasted about two years and MASH lasted 11. (laughs) Okay, so they were in this weird twilight zone, uh, Neverland, where characters couldn't necessarily get married and move to their own apartments and have kids and get divorced and have other relationships, that sort of thing. They were all locked in one time and place. But cheers, we were able to advance the characters' lives, and that helped get us stories. We've touched on earlier how the different priorities in screenwriting, I'd say, has changed over the years. But you and David Isaacs, I believe this was said on Hollywood and Levine, you told a story about when you first wrote for The Jeffersons in 1975 question is, how do you feel the attitudes to screenwriting, particularly comedy, have changed since then? Well, I think the comedy today is more mean-spirited than it was back then. I don't think the writers have the same goal to celebrate humanity the way we did back then. A lot of humor comes from characters humiliating themselves in public 
And uh, like I said, uh, a lot of it seems to be mean-spirited, snarky, ironic. It's, you know, just, uh, you know, different generations have their own brand of comedy. And I think that is sort of more in vogue. That's why I'm always very heartened when young people discover Cheers and discover Frasier. And like, hey, you know, it's not snarky and it's not meta and it's not pop culture references, that sort of thing. And I think it's probably why those shows have endured low these 38 years, um, because the stories are universal. The issues that the characters dealt with back then are the same issues that characters that age today are dealing with. And I just wonder some of the current crop of comedies, even the ones that that are funny and and I enjoy, I I look at uh, 30 Rock and I think in 10 years from now, is this going to just look like a relic? And are people not going to get 90% of the references that are being made on this show? You know, we, we tried to avoid that. That's an interesting point you made, because particularly Frasier, not just Frasier as a character, but his family and extended family, their conversations were very highbrow and very cultural. Uh, And I think in that regard, it is timeless because a lot of what they refer to, say, classical music is something which the composers of which had died hundreds of years previously. But Frasier, because of that, is referred to as a very clever show about very clever people and is still to this day regarded as one of the smartest comedies to have aired. Yeah. And look in contrast to Murphy Brown, which mentioned lots and lots of political figures of the time. And that show is now just so dated. And all of the references to Dan Quayle and Rumsford and just all these politicians from a bygone era makes the show unwatchable to most people. I think I think that idea of being timeless really does stand out with Cheers. And I suppose if you have any tips for people out there who are looking to write, but they don't just want to write cynically, do you have any tips for people who want to form writing partnerships as well? And any advice on how to write in a partnership with someone? Well, for partnership, I would I would look for somebody who you trust whose comic sensibility you admire and have faith in. Because to me, one of the real values of being in a partnership is that you're not working in a vacuum. Comedy is so subjective, and it helps to have somebody else to run it by who you trust. So if you pitch a joke, if I pitch a joke to David, and David goes, we can do better, then I'll take his word for it. and try to come up with something else. I also think partners need to have the same work habits. You know, if one partner is somebody who likes to get in the office and work from nine to five, and the other partner is a guy who likes to wait to the last minute or likes to write in the middle of the night in coffee shops, you are not going to be very compatible. So I think that is kind of important. And the other thing, too, is you're going to argue over things. It's just inevitable. But you can't make the arguments personal. And David and I, on any number of occasions, will be arguing cat and mouse over something. And then we look at the watch and it's 12 o'clock and we go, okay, let's go to lunch. And we go to lunch and we talk baseball. So you can't make it personal. We've always maintained that when one of us writes a joke or pitches a joke and the other goes, nah, I don't know. And you go, no, no, I think this really works. And you explain why. And the other partner says, nah, I I still don't get it. Instead of arguing for 40 minutes and having one partner pissed off, whoever lost the argument, when that happens, David and I just throw out the joke and come up with something else, that it will take less time and it will be better emotionally on each of us to just toss it aside, whether it's his joke or my joke, and just come up with something else. And that's what 
what we've always done. One other thing that we've done, writers write differently, partnerships write differently. We write head to head. We write together in the same room. And usually when we're working on on a show, we'll dictate the script to a writer's assistant. Other writers don't. They break up scenes, they do different things. But one thing that David and I did early on in our career is one script a year, we would divide up and I would write one act and David would write another act. And then we would put the two acts together and then we would polish it together. And we did that so that we each felt comfortable that we could write on our own. And the reason for that is it meant we were a partnership out of choice, not dependency. So it's not like, yeah, I know I'm late, but I'm the funny one, that kind of thing. Okay. We stayed partners because we both felt that the sum total of our work together was going to be more valuable than each of us going off individually. But that was just a choice that we made. And there were times we'd be working on a show where we would be showrunners and one of us would have to be down on the stage and the other one would sit up in the office and be rewriting the script. So we needed to have that confidence that we could write by ourselves individually. It's brilliant. It sounds like it ties in with how you said all of your scripts. So first draft was normally the draft that went forward. And it sounds like working in that partnership that worked so well, you're able to sort of form really good first drafts through that. And that's, as you said, that both together were more than the sum of your parts, I guess. Yeah. When we would write our process, we would write a draft. And then when it was finished, we would have our writer's assistant make us copies. And each of us would go home and we would go through it and make notes. And then we would come back together and do this polish. And there were a lot of jokes where you'd go, I think we can do better than this joke. And more often than not, it would be a joke that we had pitched, okay? You know, that I was flagging a joke that I pitched that that got in there, that I thought, yeah, let's take a few minutes. Let's see if we can beat this joke. And sometimes we would say, you know, this scene doesn't work or let's move this around. Let's change this. So sometimes we would throw out stuff and really do a second draft ourselves. But most of the time, all of the time, I would say that the script would go through two passes. And for the second pass, something I do to this day, I I think to myself, okay, I want to add five great jokes. Somewhere along the way, I want to add five great jokes. And a lot of times, the jokes that got the biggest laughs from our scripts were the jokes that were written the 11th hour, a half an hour before we turned in the script. One thing that I want to bring up, and it's been mentioned throughout this chat so far, is that from early in your career, your love of sports and passion for it was evident and You've talked about how you and David, even in the midst of arguments, would take a lunch break and talk about baseball. How did you become involved with MLB announcing, and in particular, Dodger Talk? Well, when I was eight years old, the Dodgers moved from Brooklyn to Los Angeles, and I heard their announcer, Vin Scully, and I just, I fell in love, and I wanted to be a baseball announcer. I reached a point in the mid 80s where I was in my mid-30s, midlife crisis, and I decided, you know what? If I don't pursue it now, I never will. So I went to the upper deck of Dodger Stadium with a tape recorder, and I just started broadcasting games into the tape recorder, learning how to do baseball play-by-play. And I did that for two years and then sent tapes around to the minor leagues. And I got a job in Syracuse, New York, and then Tidewater, Virginia, which were AAA affiliates, which is one step below the minors. Then there was an opening with the Baltimore Orioles. And all the time, I'm still writing on Cheers. There was an opening with the Baltimore Orioles, and I submitted my tape. And amazingly, out of 95 people who applied for the job, I got it. So I did the Orioles for a year. We lived in Baltimore. 
And they wanted to sign me to a three-year deal. They wanted me to move permanently to Baltimore so that I could be there for uh, winter banquets and caravans and that sort of thing. It's not an unreasonable request. But I was making 90% of my income in Los Angeles as a TV writer, and it just didn't make sense. So I left the Orioles and came back to L.A., And I was in L.A. like three weeks when I got a call from the Seattle Mariners that they had an opening. And uh, Seattle was a lot closer to L.A. And so I did the Mariners for three years. Then I did a partial schedule for the San Diego Padres. All the while now, I'm writing and directing and producing my own show on CBS. It was nuts. Like in 95, I had a show on CBS called Almost Perfect starring Nancy Travis. I was writing and directing and show running. And on the weekends, I was announcing for the San Diego Padres. Half the time, I would get in my car on Saturday morning and I would drive down to San Diego to do the games. The other half of the time, they were on the road and I would be directing on the stage all day. Then in the evening, I would be working on the rewrite. And at nine o'clock, I would get in my car and I would drive to the airport and I would fly to Philadelphia and I would meet the team, and I would announce the Padre games Saturday and Sunday, and I'd fly back with the team to San Diego, and I'd hop a shuttle to L.A., and Monday morning, I'm back on the stage directing. (laughs) I did this for a couple of years. This was insane. And then I I did Dodger Talk, which is the pre- and post-game stuff for the Dodgers and some fill-in, but it was my home team, And uh, I got to actually work with Vin Scully and, you know, I got to go to every Dodger game and I, I traveled with the Dodgers for a while and got to know the players and uh, was there for champagne celebrations and that sort of thing. And I would travel with the team on, you know, playoff trips to St. Louis and Philadelphia, New York, etc. So that was, that was really fun. You wrote your first book, actually, was It's Gone No Wait a Minute, which was about your broadcasting season with the Baltimore Orioles back in 91. And you've written a few books and plays since then. Is there anything on the horizon for us to look forward to in your literary career? Well, you know, it's hard to say with the, you know, this current pandemic. But over the last 20 years, I've written a lot of plays. That's primarily what I write. So I have a a number of plays that, well, I have a number of plays that were supposed to be produced this year and of course got canceled, but I have a number of full-length plays that hopefully will get some productions. There is a theater in uh, Marco Island, Florida, that is going to do my holiday play on the first day of Christmas uh, this November and December. Again, pandemic, um, (laughs) you know, approval. So probably look for theater productions by me. (laughs) Oh, we're we're excited for them. Well, I was going to say uh, podcasts and uh, your podcast, Hollywood and Levine, has still been going strong throughout the pandemic. It's been really good to listen to throughout. Um, Yeah, it's actually been easier in the pandemic because I started using Zoom. Prior to Zoom, I didn't want to use phone calls when I had guests. So I would have my guests actually come to my house and record the, the podcast. But since no one's going anywhere anymore, I started using Zoom and the quality isn't as great, but it's still serviceable and it opens me up to a a wide range of interview subjects. So now I'm interviewing people who are in New York and in Boston and San Francisco, et cetera. I'm not restricted by the location of my guests. And that has kind of opened things up. We're certainly aware of that. Case in point, us interviewing you over in sunny LA. And well, I'm in Scotland at the moment and it was raining from 9 a.m. yesterday till 11 (laughs) p.m. Sunny and about 78 degrees out here, boys. It's dark here and windy and wet. (laughs) (laughs) I know which one we'd prefer. Yeah, come to LA. (laughs) Oh, we'd love to. One of the final thing is, me and James are always fascinated with the names of the episodes. Where do the names of the episodes come from? Are they incepted at the beginning before writing and it's written to the name? Or do they come right at the end as a like moment and stroke of genius? Usually they come around the time of the outline. And... We've learned not to take 
half a day to <laughs> come up with a name to worry about it. So it's like, eh, okay, what about this? Fine. You know, now you'll see the the name of the episode if you're going to look up Cheers on Hulu or something like that. And, you know, it has the title of the episode listed. But when the shows originally aired and they were in TV Guide, they never said the name of the episode. They just would have the log line. So the names of the episode were really kind of for us and for bookkeeping. But we never really devoted all that much time and effort to the names. We tried to be clever when we could. The episode with pun titles are certainly my favorites. Yeah, we would do a lot of those. <laughs> yeah. We always like to ask, imagine you're at a bar. If you could uh, ask for any drink, what would your drink of choice be? My drink of choice. Well, my drink of choice would probably be a pina colada, but I, I can't drink too many of them because I'll get fat. But like when I go to Hawaii, I always savor having one pina colada. It's an excellent choice. Rupert Holmes wrote a song about them, so they must, yes. they must be <laughs> worth something. Yes. What, what are your drinks of choice? Some guinea or something? What, is, what are your drinks of choice? I've recently been partial to Cuba Libre's a uh, few cheeky glasses of that. Okay. I think I'm far more boring. I don't know. I'm just going for a pint of cider. So. <laughs> but I'll join you with the pina colada, Ken. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today, Ken. It was a, a privilege talking to you. Well, my pleasure. Thank you guys for uh, keeping the flame alive and for your interest in Cheers. It's really heartening to know that stuff I did 38 years ago is still being seen and enjoyed and appreciated by people today. That's a, that's a great reward. We wouldn't have it any other way, Ken. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Bye for now then. Cheers, Ken. Cheers. Cheers.